Our reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 22, commencing at verse 1 and going through to verse 38. In the lead up to Easter, it's Jesus being betrayed and the Last Supper or Passover. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. The Last Supper. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this. And divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also rose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is not the one who is at the table... But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, 
so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go to you, with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. Thanks very much, Tom. Yes, it was just before Christmas 1988 when Pastor John Mosey took his 19-year-old daughter, Helga, to Heathrow Airport. She was having a gap year. He was taking her back to get a plane to go to the States. Uh, back at home that evening, <clears throat> he turned on the television with his wife and son. And there was a newsflash and pictures of Lockerbie in flames. As he felt sorry for those who had been involved in that crash, suddenly on the screen appeared the words Pan Am, Flight 103. And they all suddenly realised that that was the flight that their daughter was on. Well, over the coming days, uh, he was interviewed by news reporters because he was obviously a pastor as well as a father. And the question that was put to him many times was, has this disaster destroyed your faith? How can you still believe in the face of this? And his response was, I've had my faith all my life, but now it will really be put to the test to see whether this really is real, whether what Jesus has done for me stands up against everything. When it comes to the moment of truth, when what is most precious to you is taken away, how will you respond? That's the question we're looking at this morning because Jesus' ministry on earth is coming to an end. He came with a mission. Will he be able to see it through to completion? His disciples gave up everything to follow him for, for three years. And now he's about to be taken away from them. How will they respond? But of course, this is not just a historical question. It's a question that we're all faced with. How will we respond to Jesus' death? Well, in the evening services in recent weeks, we've been looking at Jesus' last week in Jerusalem. His disputes with the Jewish leaders and authorities, the final teaching that he gave to his disciples. He knew where it was all leading, 
because he had come to Jerusalem to die. And so he wanted to prepare his disciples for life without him, to help them focus on being ready for when he comes again. The end of chapter 21, if you look at um, verse 37, says, Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. But now as we come into chapter 22, the teaching is over. It's the moment of truth. How will Jesus respond? Well, Jesus responds by showing that he is determined to fulfill the plan of the Father. What comes through in this episode is is a calmness, isn't there? He knows what is ahead, but he goes about making all the preparations necessary for it. He gives the disciples instructions as to what they should do to prepare for the Passover. He's already decided where they will meet, and he's interested in the small details of those plans. Have a look at verse 10 in chapter 22. It says, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. That would have been distinctive in itself because normally it would have been a woman carrying a jar of water. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. And when the hour came... Jesus and his disciples reclined at the table. This is not just the hour of the Passover meal. This is the time when the events start to lead to his death. In John's Gospel, we're told how Jesus prays to his father. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And so Jesus prepares his disciples for what is about to happen next. And as he does so, he tells him just how important it is for him to be spending these last moments with those who've been with him throughout his ministry. I've eagerly desired, it says, to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. If we go over to the, the, end of the, uh, the, chat, the end of the passage in verse 37, over the page, it says, It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. That quote, and he was numbered with the transgressors, comes from the book of Isaiah. It's a prophecy from the Old Testament. And Isaiah goes on to say in that same quote, he says, For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And what is Jesus saying to his disciples? He's saying, that prophecy is about me. And it is about to happen. It has to happen But why? Why does it have to happen? What is his suffering going to achieve? Well, it's no coincidence that this is all taking place at the time of the Passover. 
Passover, as you may know, was the, uh, the time when God spared from death. He passed over the firstborn of the people of Israel when they were in slavery in Egypt. And verse 7 says in chapter 22, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. The basis on which those firstborn were spared was that a lamb was killed and the blood was put on the doorposts. They showed by doing that they obeyed God's instructions. They trusted in him for his salvation, his deliverance. The lamb acted as a substitute for the firstborn. Because the lamb died, they need not die. And we're about now to to witness another substitution take place. Jesus is about to suffer. He's about to die. But in doing so, he's going to save his people. He's going to give his life that the lives of many people would be spared. In 1 Corinthians, this link is made more explicit. It says there, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Which brings us on to our next point. He's come to serve. When Jesus takes bread, he said, this is my body given for you. Doesn't mean the bread is, <clears throat> is really his body. Just as when he says, I'm the door, doesn't mean he's really a door. He's saying this bread represents my body, which is going to be broken for you. The supper they're having together is a far greater symbolic significance, which might have been lost on the disciples of the time, but later on they would have seen exactly what he meant when he said these words, and which we can see quite clearly today as we look back. Jesus was about to allow his body to be broken for them. And the cup likewise has symbolic significance. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This is for you, he's saying. Jesus was about to allow himself to be flogged, to be crucified, to bleed and die for you. And as he does so, he will be instituting a new covenant, a new way of relating to God. It would no longer be through the old covenant with its temple worship, its system of sacrifices of animals. In the new covenant, Jesus is the one perfect sacrifice for sins for all time. It's his sacrifice that makes it okay for us to approach God, to make us right with God. In the new covenant, it's the Holy Spirit who tells us how we should behave in accordance with God's instructions and gives us the strength to do so. And in the context of the the magnitude of what Jesus is about to do for his disciples, there is then huge irony in the discussion that takes place immediately afterwards. Have a look. Because what do the, the disciples do? They get into an argument about who's the greatest. Jesus rebukes them. He explains what true greatness is all about. It's not about wielding power. It is about serving others. He says, I am among you as one who serves. Everything he's doing for them, everything he's doing for us, he has come to serve. So how do the disciples respond to what Jesus says to them? Great humility, great gratitude, or sadly not. 
Let's have a look. Well, one of them, we're told, Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus. The chief priests, the, the teachers of the law, had been looking for a way to, to get rid of Jesus. And all that had stopped them up to now was their fear of the people. They thought if they do it in a public place at a public time, it might provoke a riot. They had to find a way of getting him when it was quiet, when nobody could see it. And what happens? Judas comes to them and says, I can give you Jesus. Betrayal. It's probably one of the, most wor- the worst experiences, I think, that um, people can have. I think most people can deal with the fact that there will be people that um, maybe don't like them, um, who cause their life a bit of a misery. But when a friend, somebody who's been really close to them, then turns against them, that is hard to bear, isn't it? That's why adultery is so, so painful. A husband or wife is betrayed by one who is so close. When Julius Caesar was attacked by a group of the senators and sees his friend Brutus among them, those haunting words ring out, et tu, Brute. He says, what, you as well, Brutus? I thought you were one I could at least trust in. And it's that level of betrayal we see here. Have a look at verse 21. Jesus says, the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. As one of his closest followers who's enjoyed an intimate relationship with him for for three years, who is about now to betray him. What made Judas do it? Well, we're told here that Satan entered him. And he gave in to to that temptation. We don't know whether it was for money or for, for status. Maybe it was just a frustration with where he thought things were going with Jesus. But... We don't know. But what we do know is that it had been decreed that this is what would happen. It was all according to God's plan. God brings good out of the evil that people do. But that doesn't make them any the less evil. Judas was still responsible for his actions, we're told here. Jesus says, woe to that man who betrays him. So there was betrayal, there was the enemy within. But what about the other disciples? How did they respond to to Jesus? Well, Jesus gives Peter and John instructions to to prepare for the Passover meal, and they follow them out exactly just as he had said. And even when they have this this crass discussion about who's the greatest, and they appear a long way from Jesus spiritually, he still rebukes them but reassures them. In verse 28, You are those who have stood by me in trials. And he tells them they will receive a reward. He tells them, I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The reason Jesus promises them a reward is because he knows their hearts. He knows that they've acknowledged who he is. He knows that they've accepted that he is the son of God. They want to be faithful to him. But as with all of us, they are also weak. They're also slow to understand. They're not always able to do what they know in their hearts they should do. And one of their failures will be a fear of others. 
And Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus says to Peter, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. He'll be put on the spot and he'll be asked, do you know Jesus? And he'll say, no, I never knew the man. It's not that Peter doesn't love Jesus, but at this stage, he's weak in his faith. After he's been with Jesus for the last three years, it hasn't had to be tested. But now for the first time, he will be on his own. And the one he's been following would have been arrested and taken away. But the great news is that Jesus knows this will happen. He has allowed it to happen. Have a look at verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as as wheat. Notice here that Satan has to ask. He doesn't have the power to do what he wants. He's asking Jesus. What happens when you sift wheat, when you separate it from the chaff, don't you? Satan's going to see what Peter is really made of here. In the same way he did the same with, with Job in the Old Testament. And allow, although Jesus allows him to do that, at the same time he prays that Peter's faith will not fail. And he knows that prayer will be answered. He knows Peter will turn back. And through that experience, he will have grown in his faith. And he will then be better placed to strengthen the others. The passage finishes with a grim warning for the disciples before... When he sent them off, their needs had all been supplied. They lacked nothing. But now he says to them, it's going to be different. They may well need a a purse, a bag, a sword. I don't think that means literally a sword. I think it's probably saying they need courage. After all, when Peter drew his sword, he told him to put it away, Peter. But times are going to be tough. Well, so much of the response to the disciples, but what about our response? What should our response be to what Jesus says in this passage? Well, I think the first thing should be to accept that Jesus' sacrifice was made for you. Not just for the disciples then. His sacrifice then was made for you now. When Jesus said, this is my body given for you, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you, He didn't just mean his disciples. Because later in the letter to the Corinthians, let's just turn to 1 Corinthians 11, if you've got uh, your Bibles there. Open 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. This familiar passage. This is Paul saying that this supper should be instituted for all Christians in all times. Verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. says, For I received from the Lord... What I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread... And drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
To eat this bread and drink this cup, as we shall be doing shortly, is to say, I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that when he died, he took my sins on himself so I can be forgiven, so I can enjoy a right relationship with God the Father. It's to say that I believe that my whole relationship with God goes back to what Jesus did on that cross. I can't add to that. I can't take away from it. His death was sufficient for me. And the question we will all need to answer, though, is have you accepted that Jesus' death was for you? That you needed him to die for you, to take away your sins and to receive forgiveness? And if you have, then join with us in the Lord's Supper in a moment. Why are we going to take communion? Why are we going to do that? Well, it is looking back. It's remembering. But it's also looking forward to when he comes again. Because Jesus says, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is about to be inaugurated. After the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it will be possible for people to come into his kingdom, to accept him as their king, for him to reign over them, for people to be able to approach the throne of God. But when Jesus comes again, the kingdom will be fulfilled. It will be consummated. Satan will have no more influence. Every knee will bow before that throne. What if we already part of that kingdom, as it is possible to be today. If we are looking forward to him coming again, what else does this passage say to us in the meantime? One thing it says to us is be alert to Satan. Be alert to Satan. These verses remind us that Satan is very real. He caused Judas to betray Jesus. He caused Peter to deny him. He is still active Today, we are in a real battle and we need to be on our guard. <clears throat> 1 Peter 5 8, it says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lion waiting for someone to devour. Satan penetrated Jesus' inner circle. And one of the most frequent ways he does attack today is from within. What might those ways be today? Well, let's have a look at some of them. Within the church, it may be church conflict or rumors. Satan will try and get church leaders, church members to argue about trivial things. He'll get people to spread rumors uh, about others in the church that cause conflict and division. Burnout. Or busyness. Satan will try and make people feel that they're no longer needed, that their work is not appreciated, that they no longer have anything to offer. Or he will distract leaders with things in church life that don't lead to gospel growth, that are not priorities. False teaching. Pastors, teachers at all levels in the church can be taken in by what they believe to be biblical teaching, but which really is deception by Satan. And the damage can be huge. Just because we have a long history of being a a Bible-centered church doesn't mean that we are immune. Marriage, family disruptions. Satan loves to destroy any relationship. 
But the relationships of key leaders can cause the most damage and are therefore his key targets. Satan knows if he can destroy a home, he has a better chance of destroying a church. Now, I mention these not to, to get us depressed, but to prevent us from being complacent or naive and to encourage us to prayer. Don't wait until a disaster comes before you pray. Pray for protection that it won't happen. Because you may never know in this life how much evil you have prevented with your prayers. One day you will. Be alert to Satan, but don't get depressed because this passage also provides us with a great encouragement as we finish. I'm sure most of us have uh, read the story of Peter denying Jesus and uh, feel sorry for him because we can all relate to that, can't we? We've all denied Jesus at some point. Maybe we weren't asked the direct question, do you believe in Jesus, do you follow Jesus? But maybe we kept quiet when we should have spoken up. Maybe we've denied him in other ways by giving in to temptation when we know we shouldn't have, when we've acted in the in the same way as anybody else when we thought we had an opportunity to show how different we were. And when Satan gets into us, he doesn't stop there. He'll take it forward. He'll stick the knife in and he'll twist it. He'll make us think, I'm just not worthy enough to be a Christian. I've messed up again. Why do I even bother? I can't possibly live up to what God expects. Well, if that's you, then these verses are a great encouragement because we see Peter, the one on whom Jesus said, I will build my church, three times deny Jesus. But we see Jesus saying to Peter, look, verse 32, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. There's no if you turn back, Peter. There's when you turn back, I will restore you. As Christians, we should expect suffering, but it's in our suffering that our faith is tested and it matures. It's in our suffering that we become like Jesus in his death. And it's great to see Peter a little later in the book of Acts standing up before a huge crowd preaching about Jesus, no longer afraid of anybody. He's a changed person. But he had to learn that lesson the hard way. He had Jesus interceding for him. He had the Spirit giving him the strength. We too have Jesus interceding for us. We too have the Spirit giving us strength. So as I close and as we prepare to take communion now, let me ask you a question. How will you respond to what Jesus has done for you? What will you do in the moment of truth. Will you say the same as the Apostle Paul? Because this is what Paul said. And I hope it's something we can all say. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead.